to answer your question directly, and I do answer questions directly, that my plan are to have it completely, the, the encampments removed within the four year, my first term, and moved into transitional housing or permanent and sustainable housing. I think that is an achievable goal. When I was mayor, uh, who I've worked with before, uh, and uh, who I think would be the, uh, uh, the better candidate to elect in November is our next mayor. Right, and I've interviewed a lot of people experiencing homelessness. I can tell you every story is unique, every, uni- every story is tragic. And so for me to sit in my ivory tower at the University of Washington and say, this is the, what's going on, that would be imprudent and, and, and probably irresponsible. That's Seattle mayoral candidate Bruce Harrell, followed by former Seattle mayor Greg Nichols, and then Greg Colburn, University of Washington Homeless Initiative co-chair. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. A huge local election is taking place. I think you know that by now, but just want to remind you to get your ballots in the mail. It has to be in by this coming Tuesday to count. And uh, don't do what I did several years ago. You get your ballot early, you stick it away somewhere, then two or three days after the election, you find it. So, uh, I'm just suggesting you take a look at it and get it in the mail because all indications are this race is going to be quite close. I spoke to candidate Bruce Harrell about his priorities if he's elected mayor. His opponent, Lorena Gonzalez, was invited to participate, but she chose not to because of scheduling conflicts. Over the weekend, I spoke with former Seattle Mayor Greg Nichols, and we spoke about a number of topics that are affecting Seattle, but I also asked him, who is he going to be voting for mayor? Last week, former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice endorsed Bruce Harrell. Here are some very interesting statistics. At least I think they are. We'll see if you agree. All right. The population of the Earth is around 7.8 billion people. If you condense 7.8 billion people into 100 persons and then break it down by percentage, this is what you come up with. 11% are European. 5% are North American. So that would be us. And included in that is Canada, Mexico, and Greenland. Now, I knew Canada and Mexico were part of North America, but I didn't know Greenland was. 9% are South American, 15% are African, and 60% are Asian. So that means 6 out of 10 people walking on the globe are Asian. Now for the religious breakdown. 33% are Christians, 22% are Muslims, 14% are Hindu, 7% are Buddhists, 12% are other religions, and 12% have no religious beliefs. And now let's shift to longevity. This is uh, pretty fascinating and a little bit uh, troubling. 26% live less than 14 years old. That's one out of every four people on earth. 66% die between the ages of 15 and 64 years old, and only 8% live over 65 years old. And finally, one little nugget. Only 7% of the world population have received a university education. There you have it. Back with my interview with Bruce Harrell in just a moment. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? 
Captain Sully, or a pilot on their maiden flight. If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Bruce Harrell is a native Seattleite born in 1958. He served on the Seattle City Council from 2007 to 2019, and he actually served very briefly as Seattle's acting mayor when Mayor Ed Murray stepped down. He decided to step down from the City Council around that same time, but because of the deterioration of the city over the last couple of years, he is motivated enough to try to become Seattle's 57th mayor. So let's get to my interview with Bruce Harrell. First of all, I wanted to ask you, you've been out campaigning for several months now, and I've heard you've been really out there in terms of meeting people and seeing what they're talking about. And I'm sure there's some very obvious things that are on everybody's mind, and we're going to talk about that. But have you seen anything so far that kind of surprises you about how the Seattle residents are reacting right now to the current state of affairs? Well, it doesn't surprise me. It just repeats a narrative that we hear over and over about their frustration with the homelessness issue and their frustration with our city's public safety strategies. It just resonates from neighborhood to neighborhood, regardless as to what part of town uh, I happen to be. You're hearing common themes across all demographics, old and young and everything in between, rich or poor and everything in between. They're saying the same things. Um, and they're frustrated, and they are losing faith in city government, and it just resonates. Yeah, it's been a pretty frustrating time, and it just seems to be growing. And I find that every—I guess you don't even have to have a poll to figure this out, but like a Metropolitan poll recently said that 80% of the people are saying the city council, and I assume the mayor's office too right now, they don't have any confidence that they're going to solve this homelessness problem at all with the present course. And then I also read that 50% of the people in this poll said, if we don't turn this around sometime soon, they're going to consider moving out. Yeah. And that's the sentiment that have been has been expressed for the eight months that I've been running for mayor. And I think there's accuracy behind those percentages. That not only are they completely frustrated in particularly at the city council, but they don't distinguish the city council from the mayor. It's just city. It's the city government. And when we, um, and I've heard my opponent do this a few times, point the finger at the mayor and blame it on the mayor. Well, they, the city doesn't care about that. They want the, you know, it's like a losing team blaming it on the offense for the defense. They want the team to win and people will leave jobs will leave and um, i don't take people or 
small businesses, as an example, for granted. Uh, I, I'm running because I think that I can restore hope and faith and, and a positive narrative, and that's why one of my characteristics of our platform has always been transparency, letting people see that the cost per unit, the cost per person, where the encampments are now, where we will move them in terms of getting them into transitional housing. We have to publish a plan and assure the public that we have a plan, we are implementing the plan, we should be measured against the plan, and that we're definitely heading in the right direction. And quite candidly, Paul, we make no excuses. The, the, the city's tired of excuse-making. Certainly, and that uh, leads me to another question then, and that would be like looking at homelessness, for example, and uh, the accountability factor. And let's just say four years from now, you uh, have one re-election, you're going to serve your second term, it's now 2026, or you decided not to run for re-election, or you were defeated. Let's look at homelessness for a moment. What will we see like downtown? A 50% reduction, uh, 40% or something along those lines, Other, along the freeways, in the parks, or things like that. What would you see looking forward in, in terms of the homelessness problem right now? Because I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, it's just like for years we've been hearing homelessness, this is the problem, this problem, this czar comes in, this person's going to do this, but nothing's happening. That's the perception. To answer your question directly, and I do answer questions directly, that my plan are to have it completely, the, the encampments removed within the four year of my first term and moved into transitional housing or permanent and sustainable housing. I think that is an achievable goal. I think we should build all of our systems to drive that outcome. And when you are already spending north of $300 million to get people out of playgrounds, off of sidewalks, um, out of right-of-ways, into housing, that that should be the goal, and that is clearly my goal. And quite honestly, this is one reason why we tell my backstory that everything that I've done, I've had a standard of excellence. And that's why we even go back to who I was in high school, because you don't graduate valedictorian and become the MVP on three sports by being a low achiever. You don't accomplish the things I've accomplished before going into politics by being low energy or a low achiever, that I've always had a standard of excellence around everything that I do. That does not mean I am perfect. It means that I am very good at developing teams, doing the hard work, and creating outcomes that I drive. And that kind of energy and sense of urgency is exactly what the city council, the city needs, the city needs. And I think that's why uh, I become an attractive alternative to be the next mayor. How about working with the city council? There's a couple races here that I think would be much easier to work with if you're elected and uh, trying to get that coalition to the city council. I'm sure you have a preference for that of who you want to work with going forward. I have a strong preference of who I want to work around and looking into my second year that seven of them will be up for re-election. And what I'm looking for are people who can make values-based decisions. And by that, I mean decisions truly based on what he or she believes are in the best interest of the city 
and not calibrate that against what's politically expedient to calib- to to be able to listen to voices that are in city hall but to be able to go outside of city hall to the coffee shops and to the grocery stores and to the neighborhoods and listen to them as well to listen to a small business owner or the small landlord or the person of color who's working two jobs um, in order to meet their family's needs. Often these people are not at city hall. And so I'm excited about a new bench strength of potential council members emerging out of the pandemic who are values based. In terms of public safety, we've seen that really deteriorate over the uh, last several years. I mean, shootings are up. uh, You know, people are very worried about, you know, walking downtown at all, including me. I mean, I've lived in the city for 40 years, and I love Seattle. I didn't want to live anywhere else. And I live in West Seattle now, and, you know, it's just really hard. I'm joining everybody else just looking at how this city has fallen into hard times very quickly, you know, you find out this can happen fast. So back to the public safety issue. How am I going to feel safer with the police, the deterioration there that we've seen people leave? What are your ideas there? Well, several ideas. Number one, we will not defund the police, but in, invest at the levels to achieve optimal performance. And by that, I mean 13, 1,400 officers Uh, in our police department. We will also create a new kind of public safety officer to complement those skills, an unarmed public safety officer that will be able to provide safety in communities. We will recruit from communities who want, who we, we will recruit the kind of person who wants to protect their community and who will be skilled at mediation and de-escalation. They will be trained. It will be a certified position. We will revisit where a gun and badge currently goes to see if that makes sense. I I believe there are some significant changes we can make there. But at the end of the day, I want culturally competent police officers. Remember, I was the one who passed the bias-free policing law. We want to eradicate racism and unreasonable force. But we also want seven-minute response times in all neighborhoods to be safe. My opponent has repeatedly doubled down on the defund 50% uh, narrative, which for me, to achieve optimal performance from a newly created department, you don't start with that investment strategy. You may increase the funding because you're trying to create different outcomes. And what we see now is not sustainable with less than 900 officers. That is not a sustainable uh, number. To, to achieve the level of safety that I will demand. Graffiti, you've mentioned and talked about that, and uh, downtown looks atrocious. Our bridges are, you know, a chaotic scrawl, and, and it's all around the area. I've never been a big fan of Mayor Giuliani and got stranger by the year, but back when he was mayor of New York, <laughs> I really do think that he had something going with the broken window theory, and that is, you know, with the subways being all painted up and the graffiti everywhere, he felt that that needed to be fixed. And that really did seem to turn New York around. And I've always felt that. And I, when I drive through tunnels and I see all this going on, it's just like we've given up and we just, that's an indication that you just don't care anymore. What's your feelings on that? I couldn't agree more. Uh, anyone that knows me personally, who's been in my home or 
visit uh, different sites with me will know that I cannot stand waste and filth and garbage and graffiti. It literally makes me cringe when I see it. And I think that City Hall has become somewhat indifferent or impartial or numb to it. So it drives me nuts. Now, what we will do is we will, first of all, penetrate the culture of graffiti. We sort of know we're spending around $3 million now. We're painting up when we can, but then you know, a week later, even a day later, the graffiti comes back. So I have to become the master of knowing the culture and why it is being uh, painted. I also have to look at the enforcement laws to see if that needs to be tightened um, and strengthened. But we will aggressively attack the graffiti problem. We have, first of all have to admit, admit how atrocious it is. Look at what other cities have done to get in front of it and to prevent it from happening again. A strategy cannot be just to rapidly paint over the graffiti because it quickly comes back. I've talked to several grassroots activists about helping me on the graffiti issue because I'm going to need a all-hands-on-deck approach, and we will implement a best practice here in Seattle. I'm completely intolerant of the graffiti problem we have in this city. Anything else before we go? I'd like to give you just an open opportunity to say what you would like to talk to with the audience. Well, you know, thanks for this interview, number one. I just want to tell folks that I do think this is probably, in recent history, the most important um, election in our city's history because we are going to define or redefine what our city will be. And when we look at all of the issues uh, coming out of this pandemic, there's going to be a jobs war, for example, and the winners will be those who can recruit and retain good jobs. Public safety becomes critical because it's going to our quality of life. And this is where my Kent, my opponent and I are just are diametrically opposite in our approach. This should be a unifying conversation, not a divisive conversation. All communities want to feel safe. And under my approach, we will make sure all communities are safe and we'll build it from within. We'll build it with community input and community leaders. And so I'm looking forward to a new day in Seattle. And quite frankly, I think it's overdue. One more question. That would be on Amazon. What is your relation been with Amazon and what is it going to be? Well, Amazon, I recognize, is a large employer. They have to pay their fair share of taxes. They have to be a good corporate citizen. They have to align their corporate social responsibility goals with our most pressing issues, which is affordable housing, the homelessness issue, our educational strategies, and public safety. So my relationship with Amazon will be to hold them accountable, to develop a relationship with them so they realize that because of the uh, advantages of e-commerce that small businesses and brick-and-mortar institutions are are failing, and I believe they have a duty to help us be- become a great, optimized city, and I'll hold them accountable and work with them to develop that end. That's Bruce Harrell, candidate for the mayor of Seattle. We did reach out to Bruce Harrell's opponent, Lorena Gonzalez, for an interview as well, but we're told that because of scheduling conflicts, she could not participate. Her campaign manager said, quote, I am sorry, but she is totally booked, end of quote. Seattle's 51st mayor. He served two terms between 2002 and 2010. 
I had an extensive interview with him last March. He shared some of his hopes and concerns about the city at the time. Now there is less than a week before the election, and we know the stakes are very high. In my opinion, no two candidates have ever had more differing views of where they want to take this city than the two we have running right now. I spoke to former Mayor Nichols over the weekend, and I asked him, among other things, who will he be voting for and why? Well, I had a, a good chat uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Bruce Harrell, uh, who was on the council uh, when I was mayor, uh, who I've worked with before, uh, and uh, who I think would be the, uh, uh, the better candidate to elect in November as our next mayor. And so why do you think that? You observe him on the council and you've seen him running a campaign. Are there things that maybe brought you to this decision? He presided over the council uh, toward the end of uh, his uh, time as a council member. Uh, and uh, I think the count and, and the, the opponent also chairs the council uh, uh, in recent years. And I think that the performance of the council uh, when Bruce was uh, was president of the council uh, was uh, was better than what I have observed in in uh, more recent years. I I think the council uh, is uh, off track, uh, and I think that that at least in part reflects the leadership of the council uh, as it did back when uh, when Bruce was uh, president of the council. Traditionally, mayors kind of want to take a back step to, let's say, the race is going forward because there's kind of a tradition of that. It seems that that has not been occurring in this time around because I think maybe the stakes are so high and so people like Norm Rice and you are stepping out. Or is that inaccurate? Maybe there's been endorsements like this all the time. But I have that sense that there's been this sort of... um, collegial type of uh, former mayors and mayors together not to step in and do this. Uh, but again, that's kind of gone out the door this time. Am I correct there, or am yeah. I off? I actually, I think the, the tradition may actually go the other way. Now, when I was still in office um, and awaiting the election of the next mayor, I did not endorse, because I knew that whoever was elected I would need to work with in terms of a transition. But four years ago, uh, I endorsed uh, Jenny Durkin uh, to be mayor. I thought she was the the stronger candidate uh, uh, after the primary. Uh, And uh, I know that uh, when I ran uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, that uh, Charlie Royer uh, endorsed uh, the incumbent uh, before the primary. Uh, So uh, I think that, that mayors are very interested in the future of the city, we want to keep our doors open so that we can provide whatever help we can to uh, to the sitting mayor. But I don't think we're shy about expressing our preferences uh, when it comes to uh, who the next mayor should be. In the interview I had last March, you were really still very positive on Seattle, its, its future and things. We're going through a rough spot at the time, but you, again, think thought that the pendulum was going to swing back. We were going to be in a position again to do the Seattle tradition of really growing and thriving. Do you feel as strongly about that today as you did then? Are there things that have popped up in the last, let's say, eight months or so that give pause to that optimism? 
I continue to be very uh, bullish on the future of Seattle. I, uh, when I was mayor, I uh, looked around and I thought there was no city in America I would trade places with. And I think I, uh, I, I maintain that same feeling today. Uh, we have a strong economy. Uh, it's based on uh, very future-looking technologies and, and sectors. Uh, we have great people in this city, uh, very, uh, very civic-minded, very willing to uh, reach out and help, uh, help their neighbors uh, when in need. Uh, I, I think there's just the right combination of caring, uh, talent, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and enthusiasm uh, amongst the people of Seattle. So I am very positive on the future of the city. We are going through rough patches, as is every city in the country due to COVID and uh, the economic fallout from COVID. Uh, we, along with every other city in America, must come to grips with the idea that uh, we have a, uh, a past in which uh, racism has been uh, been present, if not acknowledged, and we need to help, along with every other city in the country, come to grips with that and uh, acknowledge it and do what we can to, uh, to make sure the future does not reflect the past. So we have challenges, homelessness. Uh, we have lots of issues around our our schools and supporting public education. Uh, we continue to struggle with transportation, though less so because of COVID. But when we come out of it, we will again be facing that uh, those issues. But we've taken steps to deal with each of them. And uh, uh, I'm proud of what we've done in the past. And I'm looking forward to uh, many more accomplishments in the future. Do you get the sense that this election coming up right now, it's kind of like I get the feel that people are saying that the future of Seattle is at stake here. I don't recall two candidates running against each other for mayor that have been so divided. Well, I I think every election is defined by the differences between the candidates. So uh, in my year, it was uh, style, uh, whether uh, the Seattle way or... Uh, a, a bit of a harsher uh, way was appropriate going into the future. Uh, with Norm Rice, it was uh, the issue of schools and busing. Um, so I think we've had good, vigorous uh, distinctions between the candidates, but it's a very important election. Uh, and, and frankly, every time we select a new mayor, I think it's an important election because it says a lot about who we are what our aspirations are, and how we're going to achieve those aspirations. Who are you endorsing for the two at-large positions for the Seattle City Council? I have endorsed uh, Sarah Nelson. Uh, I supported her when she ran a couple of years ago, I guess four years ago. Uh, I worked with her when she was on staff with uh, Council Member Richard Conlon. I thought she was very uh, talented and very uh, very smart and able to deal with the issues as his aide. And as someone who served as an aide, I also believe that there's a, a time and a place for people to uh, to chart their own course, and I think Sarah's ready to do that. The uh, other race I have not. Uh, I'm still looking at it, uh, but uh, I have not made a decision on who I'm going to support or, or vote for. And how about city attorney? That's a tough one. I have decided I'm going to vote for Ann Davison, 
and ran for the city council a number of years ago, was unsuccessful, but clearly is committed to our city. Uh, she then uh, decided that uh, if her if she was too conservative to be a Democrat in Seattle, uh, maybe she would be accepted by the the Republican Party and ran for uh, lieutenant governor. So politically, I have some you know distance uh, between myself and her. She's reached out to people who I respect and asked them for their help uh, should she be elected in uh, forming that office and, and managing that office. So I think that, that says some positive things about her. Her opponent, on the other hand, I think just well off of the beaten track in terms of uh, the responsibilities of the office uh, in uh, overseeing uh, criminal law which is not their main focus, but which is important when you're, when you're talking about quality of life issues in our city. When I look at uh, an article last week in the Seattle Times, a uh, gentleman by the name of Adam Sinet, he is a pastor. He wrote something essentially saying about Compassion Seattle, yes, yes, Compassion Seattle, yes, no. And, and essentially what he was saying that when you let people just have the city to their own in the sidewalks and doing whatever they do, the needles around the city, being able to walk into stores and and, and stealing groceries or or anything within that store and not get prosecuted. They're living this type of life that um, is really not doing them any favors whatsoever. And part of compassion, yes, is saying no. I think that people live up to or down to the expectations that we have for one another. And I think that the idea that, that, that folks are going to live in, in our parks and our uh, public spaces um, and, and dump garbage on the sidewalk and in the streets uh, shows disrespect for all of us who call Seattle home. Now, we have an obligation, I think, to provide support. We have a lot of people out there who are mentally ill, and we do not have adequate mental health services. We have people who are addicted uh, to uh, uh, various uh, substances, and we do not have adequate addiction uh, services. And I think we have an obligation to uh, to change that. That's been true for uh, far too long. Housing has become incredibly expensive in the city. Uh, and I think we have uh, obligation there to create affordable housing and subsidized housing for people who cannot uh, afford what's out there. Uh, but I think we've gone a long way in terms of doing that. The people of Seattle have voted uh, six or seven times on housing levies and voted to tax themselves to create that, that housing. Uh, it's not been enough, uh, but it is, um, I think, uh, very uh, much reflecting on the spirit of the people of the city that they have done that over and over and over again. So we need to fix the system of shelter. Uh, clearly, if people are choosing to live on sidewalks and under overpasses rather than go to the uh, the shelters, that there's a problem there, and we need to figure out what that is and how to fix it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to set expectations for people that they're going to treat this place as their home, regardless of whether that home is a, uh, a, a tiny house uh, or a shelter bed uh, or uh, they are fortunate enough to be in their own housing. So 
So, uh, so I think there are issues there that need to be addressed uh, and need to be addressed now. My thanks to former Mayor Greg Nichols. If you would like to listen to the interview I had with Mayor Nichols from last March, Google KKNW, click on to programs, then click on to Wednesday, scroll down to Voices of Experience and click again, and you can view all of the previous shows. Now, this interview took place on March 2nd, 2021. It was titled, Talking Me Off the Ledge. He did that for me then, and he did it again during this interview. My commentary today is about another myth. Myth number seven, which is in my book, Pre-Flight Checklist, is self-employment for you. Today, thinking positive is the key to success. There's a billion-dollar industry developed around the concept that thinking positively will change an outcome from bad to good, and that if you always think positively, good things will happen to you. I hate to sound like a Debbie Downer, but this is ridiculous, especially if you're starting your own business. There is nothing wrong with being a positive person, but sometimes it will help you to be more negative. The important thing is to be realistic or a pragmatist about the problems you're facing and how to handle them. A friend once told me this story. A man is out on the ocean in a sailboat, but his boat is not moving. Is he an optimist, a pessimist, or a realist? If he's an optimist, he says, well, maybe the wind will pick up later today. If he's a pessimist, he says, damn. I'm going to be stuck out here all night because there's just no win. If he's a realist, he says, let's just adjust the sales. If you're a business owner, you should hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. How can you prepare your business for a catastrophe like we are all going through right now with the pandemic? What can you do to prepare your business for the next recession or economic slowdown when it comes? And it will come. The economy moves in cycles, alternately peaking and slowing down, every five to eight years or so. Of course, you shouldn't have a negative attitude as a business owner when dealing with employees and customers. Your persona should always be positive and optimistic. You must project confidence in what you are doing at all times to the general public and, again, to your employees and customers. But as a business owner, you must develop the ability to look at things as they are, not as you wish they were, and make decisions accordingly. You must continuously ask yourself, what could go wrong, and take steps to counter or prevent the negative outcomes. Thinking positive will not save your business from disaster. The smartest people in the room, whether they show it or not, are always exploring the negatives every decision they make. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
In 1947, the first black man stepped onto a Major League Baseball field as a player. But the struggle to stay there had just begun. Long before the Civil Rights March in Washington, Jackie Robinson played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. General Manager Branch Rickey wanted to entice more black fans to the ballpark. Some players wanted to keep the game white and said they would boycott games when Jackie Robinson was in the lineup. Ford Frick, president of the National League, said he would suspend any boycotters. Quote, I don't care if it wrecks the National League for five years. This is the United States of America. Major League Baseball was now on the path to integration. University of Washington Homeless Initiative co-chair Craig Colburn spoke to the Seattle Rotary Club about the chief causes of homelessness. Now, when I first heard that someone was going to talk about homelessness again, I frankly wasn't too excited about sitting through another presentation. However, Greg did have some thought-provoking ideas regarding the cause of homelessness, and he also tackled some of the long-held myths as to why we're at the place we are right now. Greg Colburn. Right now, I've interviewed a lot of people experiencing homelessness. I can tell you every story is unique. Every uni- every story is tragic. And so for me to sit in my ivory tower at the University of Washington and say, this is the, what's going on, that would be imprudent and, and, and probably irresponsible. And so we have a really, really complex problem um, that we have not properly diagnosed, in my opinion. And as a result, this keeps getting worse and worse. So the point in time estimate is um, how we count homelessness in each jurisdiction around the country. And our jurisdiction is Seattle King County. It covers the city and the county. And so 2019 was the last time we did this because of uh, COVID last year. We didn't do the census. But part of that, we'll do a survey and ask people, why are you homeless? Right. And so we'll see answers like this. And this has appeared in the Seattle Times, job loss, addiction, da, 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 da. And when I read this, I always cringe a little bit because what we're asking people is, why are you now experiencing homelessness? And they'll say, well, I got in a fight with my roommate. He or she kicked me out and now I'm homeless. Or I got divorced. Right. And my spouse kicked me out and now I'm homeless. And when I read that, I always say, if divorce were a cause of homelessness, shouldn't we have a lot more homelessness in this country? What, 50% of marriages end in divorce, right? I don't believe, and who am I to tell someone that's not the reason, but I really don't believe that's the reason that they are experiencing homelessness. I prefer to call that a precipitating event, okay? They are living on the margin such that one event, an argument, um, addiction, whatever the case may be, may lead to homelessness, but I don't believe that that is the root cause. And as a result, I think as a community, we're focusing on precipitating events and treating precipitating events as opposed to getting to the underlying cause. And I think as long as we focus on these precipitating events, we will fail. We are failing and we will continue to fail, in my opinion. So an analogy I like to use to think about causation and homelessness is the game of musical chairs, which you may have played as a, as a child or your children played. So imagine 10 people in a circle, 10 chairs, right? We turn the music on, the leader pulls one chair out. We now have 10 people in nine chairs. As soon as the music stops, everyone scrambles to find a chair. And by definition, someone's left without a chair. In this case, Mike has a, has a bad ankle. He's on crutches and therefore loses the game, right? Because Mike is not being, he's not very agile, mobile. Uh, and as a result, loses the game. And so if he said, what caused Mike to lose the game? What would we say? His ankle injury, right? And that would be a reasonable answer. Under the, the terms and conditions of that game, it is likely that Mike's ankle injury caused him to be homeless. Do ankle injuries cause chairlessness? No, right? It's that we had a game set up where someone was going to be without a chair. And that vulnerability that Mike had then identified him as the person most likely to be without. The root cause of his chairlessness was the fact that we didn't have enough chairs. If we had 10 chairs, Mike would have found a chair. It may have taken longer, 
as he hobbled over in his crutches, but he would have found a chair. I feel like that's what's going on now in Seattle and in many cities on our coast where we've got a homelessness problem, where we, I, where we focus on Mike's ankle injury rather than under the very root cause, which is we don't have enough chairs or we don't have enough houses. We know from research and a lot of research has been done that mental illness, poverty and addiction absolutely increase the risk of someone experiencing homelessness. There is no doubt about that. But we also know that those conditions produce homelessness in some places like Seattle and not in other places like Detroit. So what's going on? So the central question of the book is why do rates, and when I say rates of homelessness, I mean per capita rates. We're not looking at absolute numbers here because cities are different sizes. Why do per capita rates of homelessness vary so widely around the United States and what drives that variation? Okay, Seattle is five times the rate of Chicago. And so when we think about vulnerabilities, and we know that these individual vulnerabilities produce homelessness, does Seattle have a big problem because we have more people with those individual vulnerabilities? Drug use, mental illness, poverty, et cetera. That's a plausible explanation. Let's test it, and that's what we do in the book. So this is a book about cities, not about people. There's lots of good research on individual people. That research should continue. That's not what this is about. We're trying to understand what's different about Seattle than Chicago, than Detroit, than Phoenix, et cetera. And our thesis to, to cut to the chase here is that tight housing markets where housing is expensive and where it's not very available as measured by vacancy rates, if you give me those two numbers, I can give you a pretty darn good estimate of rates of homelessness. Homelessness is clearly a function of poverty. If you are poor, you're far more likely to experience homelessness. If you're rich, you're very, very unlikely to experience homelessness. The most impoverished cities in the country, Detroit being the most impoverished city in the country, has the lowest rates of homelessness. Homelessness thrives amidst affluence. Seattle is a very wealthy city. San Francisco is a very wealthy city. So it's not that we have more poor people in Seattle. In fact, we have far fewer poor people. Okay, so it's poverty at the community level does not predict homelessness. Washington doesn't have any more homeless people than or excuse me, mentally ill people than anywhere else. Okay, so it's not that we have more people with these vulnerabilities in Washington and Oregon and California, New York and Massachusetts than anywhere else. Okay, the consequences of those conditions in these places is much different. Uh, Illicit drug use, again, no relationship. We don't have more drug users here, but we don't have more rates of um, people with serious substance abuse uh, issues here in Seattle than anywhere else. Weather is frequently blamed uh, for homelessness. There's no relationship between weather and homelessness. And if we think about it anecdotally, it makes sense because places like Boston are cold have a huge homelessness problem. New York is cold, has a big homelessness problem. Miami, Dallas, Phoenix are warm. They don't have a homelessness problem. So the narrative fits when you talk about LA and San Francisco, it's moderate, therefore you're gonna be homelessness. But, but when you actually spread it out over the country, there's really no relationship. Generosity of benefits is frequently mentioned that we have very generous benefits here. And then as a result, people uh, will move here, right? Or it's easier to be homeless. There are places that are very generous and places that are very stingy and it has zero relationship to homelessness. And so people say, well, I don't know. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Another way to look at this is this is looking at low income migration. The narrative, and this has happened to me in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in California, in Seattle, everyone believes they're a magnet for homelessness. We don't see any evidence of low income mobility or a magnet effect. Why? I just moved a family of four or four years ago. Moving is hard. It's expensive. It's traumatic. If you have no resources and no social network, you think you're going to move to Topeka to optimize benefits or cheaper housing? No, it's very, very difficult to move. And so what we see from people on the fringes of society, mobility falls dramatically because generally speaking, moving requires resources. Generally speaking, the people are homeless in Seattle and San Francisco and L.A. are from Seattle, San Francisco and L.A. A a real common narrative is that um, generous benefits or kind of um, left-leaning policies are are to blame. And so we said, well, let's take a look at this. And our sample has 30 cities around the United States. And we said, well, let's just see who runs these cities. Generally speaking, Democrats run cities. There were a couple exceptions. Bloomberg was an independent. He's in the sample when he was mayor in New York. And I think Miami had a Republican mayor and San Diego had a Republican mayor for a little while. Generally speaking, though, everyone else who was Democratic mayors, 
Chicago and Cleveland are, having lived in Chicago, is as democratic as cities as they are. They don't have a homelessness problem. So if democratic policies are to blame, why does it not have an issue there, but it does here? Where rents are high, homelessness is high. The um, explanatory power of these two variables is pretty significant. When vacancy rates are low and rents are high, you have high rates of homelessness. Why do we have coastal cities with really high rents and low vacancies, right? And a lot of times people say, well, it's because we have booming economies and people are moving here. Well, what's interesting is when you plot population growth with homelessness, again, you don't see any relationship. So it's not just that people are moving to Seattle because people are moving to Charlotte, North Carolina at similar rates to Seattle and they don't have the same problem we have. Why? Well, they build a lot of housing is the short answer. So it's not just a demand story. That's certainly part of it. The fact that Amazon has boomed and people are moving here with high paying jobs is absolutely part of the story. But the fact that we haven't built sufficient housing is also part of the story. It's easy to build in Texas. It's not easy to build in Seattle and San Francisco for a whole host of reasons. Mountains, water, complicate things, and regulatory environment complicates things, which is the Rust Belt doesn't have a problem with housing and homelessness. Why? Because people are leaving and housing's durable. And so if people leave, you got plenty of housing. They're actually tearing down housing in Detroit. Homelessness is not a crisis in the Rust Belt, which is the most impoverished place. And if you've been to Detroit recently, it's kind of a depressing place. But homelessness, they've got a lot of issues. Homelessness is not one of them. So there's a couple ways to get to low homelessness. One is you have industrial decline and no mayor in the country would aspire to that. So I don't expect Seattle to pursue that as a strategy. The other one is you build a whole bunch of housing in response, which is what the Sun Belt has done. If you look at the housing production in Charlotte, it's unbelievable. Right? People keep moving there and they just keep building a whole bunch of housing. And as a result, their vacancy rates are pretty high and rents have stayed more moderate. That's not the case in San Francisco. We're actually a star performer compared to San Francisco. San Francisco is impossible to build, right? which is why their crisis is even worse than ours. We know that housing works. We've demonstrated it with, with veterans homelessness. The question is, will we expand that to a broader population? And that's a political question and one of values, ideologies, et cetera, and resource allocation. But we know it works. So what do we need? We need two types of investments. One is we need continuing operating investments, which is where we focus our money now, which is we need to provide services and shelters and all this kind of stuff. People say, well, Greg, what would you do if I had a magic wand? There's two things I would do. One is we need help from the feds because the feds have the deepest pocket anywhere. Generally speaking, the feds have divorced themselves from the issue of low-income housing policy and pushed this issue on states and cities who do not have near the resources that the federal government does. If we expanded the federal voucher program to all the people who are eligible, one in five right now get it. If all, be, if all people eligible got a voucher, it would make a huge difference. It would really help in places like Cleveland and Detroit where there's housing units. The problem here is we need more units. So if we could pair federal support through the voucher program with a local commitment to greater production of housing such that people who get those vouchers have a place to use them, I believe that we can make a huge, huge dent in this problem. But that's a big ask. Housing is expensive. We need to find land. We need to have greater, more dense housing. Um, and that's not easy. And there's a reason we haven't done this is because it is very difficult politically to do. That's Greg Colburn, assistant professor at the University of Washington's Homeless Initiative. The major takeaways? Homelessness is largely a major problem of affluent urban centers. Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, Boston, and New York. Just to name some of the top contenders. Question. Are we up to the challenge of increasing housing stocks in a major way and constructing multifamily apartments in single-family neighborhoods? One of the myths he laid to rest is that the homelessness here and in other major cities isn't because people are moving here or there to take advantage of our or their perceived generous social programs. The vast majority of homelessness individuals are from the area they grew up in. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. 
bases loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Seattle mayoral candidate Bruce Harrell, former Seattle mayor Greg Nichols, and University of Washington Homelessness Initiative co-chair Greg Colburn for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Next week, pollster Stu Elway will join us, and he will provide some early observations as to how the election is going in this area but he'll be here with us to give some early observations about what is going on, what is trending. Big election. Many of the candidates have vastly different ideas on how Seattle and the region should move forward. Voices of Experience is simulcast on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and rebroadcast Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? Call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Please keep your comments short. And remember to tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. right here on KIXI. Lisa addresses mid-to-late career moves should you stay with your traditional job as it is now, should you retire or semi-retire. All of this is discussed, and Lisa helps keep you focused. That's Monday afternoons at 3 p.m., reigniting you with Lisa Downs. A very, very good friend of mine and close colleague passed away in August. His name was Larry Kaufman, and we were together for many, many years. Before he passed away, he wrote on his website, Marketing Northwest, who he thinks should be the next mayor. In honor of Larry, I'm going to read that. The choice for mayor may be the easiest in the history of the mayor's race in Seattle. Native son Bruce Harrell brings the knowledge and experience and strength needed to get Seattle back on track. And who better to deal with the do-nothing, wheel-spinning city council in peril? Again, that is Larry Kaufman endorsing Bruce Harrell for mayor. Quote of the week, America is the only country where a significant proportion of the population think that wrestling is real and the moonwalk was fake. David Letterman. 
Before we go, I would just like to play a couple of comments that I will play in a longer format in the future about what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Michael Thompson is my guest and also a very good friend. Michael is a Washington native who grew up in Tacoma. That Tacoma connection eventually led him back to his roots. In 2011, he put together a group of investors to purchase what is now the AAA West Tacoma Rainiers. Michael serves as chairman and CEO of the Tacoma Rainiers. Michael spent more than 20 years in the wireless industry. In 1992, he co-founded Pacific Northwest Cellular, where he served as managing director. After a series of acquisitions and mergers, he became CEO of Western Wireless until Western Wireless sold to Altel in 2005. Michael serves on a variety of private company boards. He co-founded Trilogy, where he and his partners have become angel investors. He has served as chairman of the Washington State University Foundation, where he graduated from with a degree in business. I started out my conversation with Michael, and I asked him, what does he look for when he is hiring someone? I look for someone who is more than just a, you know, just a set of experiences that are directly attributable to the job that I'm looking for. I look for a well-rounded person. I look for somebody who has uh, done a lot of things outside of their, uh, uh, their professional side that, that they're not a, a, a one dimensional person. And, um, you know, but in general, I'm looking for somebody who brings more than just the bare minimum to the job, but people who bring, uh, a, a lot of diversity of experiences. Sure. Like joining clubs and things like that, or just being involved in extracurricular activities. Yep. Let's say, you know, you and, and a number of people, obviously the last year and a half has been extremely challenging for everybody. I would say from a, an overall standpoint, I have been served well professionally by having a diversity of interests. Uh, we've had the Trilogy is a, a company that we uh, started with a bunch of uh, my former uh, officers and and, um, uh, and board members from Western Wireless and VoiceStream uh, after we sold those two companies. And uh, it's we've invested largely in, uh, in wireless uh, and, um, and other related firms that uh, have emphasized the movement from bricks, brick and mortar to doing things on the internet, doing things on wireless phones. That's Michael Thompson, and I'm going to play some more of his comments in a future show coming up.